Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. I am very excited about today's episode. It is a wide-ranging interview with the one, the only, Jonathan Van Ness. You probably know Jonathan as the grooming expert on the Netflix makeover show, Queer Eye. It's almost like the reverse of I woke up like this. Like, did anyone ever wake up like this? You're as broke as a joke. There's no excuse for you to not have some face wash. Actually, the way that he is is great, and it looks amazing. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. On that show, he is a walking, talking bundle of energy and optimism and fierceness and high fashion. But things weren't always like that for him. Jonathan's out with a new book, a memoir that talks about his life before Queer Eye, when things weren't as bright. This book is called Over the Top, A Raw Journey to Self-Love. And in this book, Jonathan Van Ness covers a lot of ground. He writes about childhood trauma, disordered eating, depression, drug use, sexual compulsion, and a lot more. His story, ultimately, is very inspiring. Listeners, as a heads up, we get into a lot of stuff that is pretty heavy and sensitive. Drugs, sex, trauma may not be the best chat for kids to hear. Okay, here's our chat. I was in New York when we taped. Jonathan was in L.A. All right, enjoy. Hi, how are you? I'm Sam. Hi, Sam. It's really nice to meet you. You too. All right, so I want to talk about this book, which I devoured over the weekend. Um, but I got a very specific question to ask about the particular way you wrote this book. Uh, it's a memoir. And in a lot of memoirs, people will change the names of family and friends just to protect the family and friends. What you did with this book and what I loved is that every name that was changed, you changed it to a very distinctly Russian name, like a classic Russian name. That's kind of amazing. Thank you. Um, you know, I... After the animated classic Anastasia, as I talk about in the book, I've never been the same. I've never fully recovered. <laughs> so that definitely was reflected through the name change choices. Yeah. And like, it wasn't like just Vladimir and stuff. It was like some deep cut Russian names. Like, what was the most extreme Russian-y Russian name you used to disguise someone? Well, my favorite name that I use to disguise anyone is a made-up Russian name. Really? For my, yeah, and it's for my figure skating coach, Elliot, and I changed his name to Elliot Skovadova. <laughs> and I thought that was, it just, I feel like you put Skovadova on something and it just feels so Russian. And I live for a Russian name. Oh, listen, same here. So this book, um, I've read it. Some folks that hear this conversation will have read it or will not have read it. Give us a quick elevator pitch for it and what you're trying to say in it in like 30 seconds. You know, it's kind of like the good, the bad and the ugly mm. of, you know, kind of what I went through and becoming the JVN that uh, people know a version of like through Queer Eye or maybe, you know, my Instagram or the, you know, my podcast or whatever. It's the story of me coming to terms with everything that's kind of happened to me and how I've just kind of navigated to where I am now. And I think yeah. that I think that there are definitely things that I discuss in the book that, you know, you may or may not see coming. But I really think that the things that I talk about in the book are um, important conversations that we need to be having. And yeah. yeah. It was probably in the early chapters in the book where you lay out this kind of analogy as to how you see yourself navigating all the different sides of yourself. And, you know, talking about your journey, loving yourself, being nice to yourself. But... You describe navigating all the different parts of your personality and emotions as like having to drive a van full of several different JVNs. 
There's introvert JVN, extrovert JVN, loving JVN, judgy um, JVN. They're all trying to drive the car. And you have to figure out who gets to be in the driver's seat or the back seat based on what you need. I loved that analogy, and I had never heard it before. Where'd that come from? Well, I don't think I invented that analogy. Um, I think it is it is an analogy that is often used in, um, in parts therapy, um, mm. which is a therapy that, you know, I've done and, and, and work with um, my therapist on. And it really helps me to think about, you know, a system of personalities interacting with that way in a car. Mm. I do think that I maybe, I think in that paragraph, I talk about like what my, what my parts are really doing in the car, which that is my own interpretive flair. Yeah. Um, what are they doing in the car? I think I was talking about like one was on the roof <laughs> listening to Lizzo, like, um, twerking, uh, <laughs> trying to get my ass to clap on the roof. And the other ones were, you know, trying to get somewhere on time. And the other one was, yeah. Um, but the thing is about parts, it's really interesting is that like everyone has like their own minivan, so to speak, and their own mm. parts to name and give voice to. Mm. And that's the really cool thing about parts therapy is that like, no one can really tell you like what your parts are like, and, and your relationship with like the, and it doesn't, it's, um, everyone has parts and yes. everyone and and i think based on your amount of trauma and your upbringing and kind of what you went through like will determine like how intense or easily identifiable or like polarized your mm. parts will show up in your personality yeah and you know i definitely have some pretty colorful parts you're not telling any of the parts to get out of the van you're saying you're part of me you're me you get to ride but we got to work together effectively in this vehicle Totally. And I think that's the thing with parts as well. Is like they're all doing the best they can with yes. what they know. Yes. It's just that sometimes they're, you know, misguided. And also when you have experienced trauma, a lot of times your parts will get stuck in in and around the age that you were when you incurred that trauma. Mm. So when you're a lot of times the parts that we're dealing with will be like younger versions of ourselves. Mm. And that is a lot of times where people you know, myself included, like can really get into trouble mm. because that part is still kind of stuck in an era where it's like protecting you from something or or making a certain decision based off of like a fear that is maybe not actually still there. Yeah. Um. But when you went through the thing or when that part went through that thing, um, it's still functioning as it's stuck back in that time where it needs to like defend itself or yeah. do whatever it is doing, yeah. Um. you know, however it's showing up in your system. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of the moments at which we incur trauma, um, one of the things that grounds the entire book is the way that you and your family are forced to react to some trauma that you experience early in your life, uh, very early, like four years old. Do you feel comfortable about talking about that with me today? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, like, as you start, this is one of the first, um, you know, really in-depth conversations that I've had around the book. And it's interesting, I just noticed, like, such a, um, just, like, swell of, just, like, emotion in my chest. It's, like, just such a surreal feeling to be, to have this moment be here. Um, Mm. Yeah, I do. And if I feel like it takes me outside of my window of tolerance, I will let you know. Okay, that's good. That's good. So... I don't want to give away the whole book to folks that haven't gotten it yet because they should get it and read it. But describe to the best you can in a way that makes sense what you went through at the age of four and how it affected you. Um, so great question. Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> basically, I uh, was I think that a lot of children will 
you know, experiment and will, and there's a lot of like different things that children do. And I think that there's like a certain, um, you know, like window for like what is like considered, you know, normal and like yeah. what is normal anyway. You discover bodies talk- and other bodies when you're a kid. Exactly. But I did have an experience, um, a, you know, a repeated experience in, in a relationship with someone who was significantly older than me that I was introduced to in and around a church setting. So it was like a trusted family friend who, you know, groomed me and, uh, you know, essentially put me into a position where I was being sexually abused by someone who was older than me and not really realizing that that was what that was called. I didn't mm-hmm. really understand like what, you yeah. know, was happening. How much older was he? Um, He was, he was significantly older in the, in the interest of, you know, protecting. Yes, sir. Oh, gotcha. Like, you yeah. know, I, um, I mean, they weren't someone who was like over 18. Okay. It was someone who, but it was also someone who was much older yeah, than me. Not near four years old, the age that you were. Right. Yeah. It was something that has, you know, colored my life mm. in so many ways and has affected me in so many ways. But it's really common. And I yeah. think that especially for, you know, male survivors of sexual abuse, I think that it is stigmatized in mm. a different way. And there's like a different amount of shame that's associated with it. And it's not, you know, more severe or less severe. I think that all sexual abuse and sexual assault is horrific. Yeah. I just, when you're a child and your world is colored in those colors, when you're not ready to understand what those colors are, I just think that it... um it just creates just like a harder road to navigate yeah. like your relationship with yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're so brave to share this story. You know, it's it's it, it's different to talk about this kind of thing when it feels appropriate with people you know and love or to maybe mention it casually in one episode of your show. But you've written this in, in a book now, which means that people will be reading about this for some time over many different iterations. And you'll be doing a lot of interviews like this with me where you'll be asked to talk about it again that takes a lot of bravery so first I commend you for that but secondly I want to ask and I was thinking the whole time like this is traumatic like was there ever a version of this book in which you didn't share the abuse um no Mm. and I think part of this Mm. book was there was a piece of it where like I wanted to write about this because I feel like I have always felt my whole life, even as a small child, that like a sense of like wanting to make sure that other kids didn't go through some of the things that I went through. And I remember having that feeling of wanting to help other kids um, and other people from a very young age. And I also talk about in the book that I thought that that was going to be like a really cute like yoga studio that maybe would have like a salon in it where you could get like blow dries and fierce like scones and like flatbread (laughs) and stuff. I didn't realize it would be like a book. Um, but I have wanted, you know, the the spirit of like wanting to help and wanting to learn and, and wanting to be able to like process what my purpose in life is and where I was born into. There was also another facet to this book where I wanted to, I wanted to do it for me. Like I wanted to heal for me. I wanted to like kind of, it was almost like this, the act of writing this book, I wanted to get it out of my system almost. And as you were saying that, I was like, I guess it didn't really totally occur to me that I was going to be doing so many interviews like what I was in the process of doing. I was like, oh, oh man. But no, the that I, I think that I think the sooner that you can talk about it, I think that the less it can kind of wreak havoc in your life. And so I think that for people that have went through something like this, I want them to know that it doesn't have to 
you know, ruin your life. You don't have to develop self-destructive behaviors that will, you know, throw your life into disarray. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, wanted to be able to share that. Yeah. All right, time for a break. I'm talking with Jonathan Van Ness, one of the stars of the hit Netflix show, Queer Eye. We're discussing his new memoir and overcoming trauma. After the break, we talk to Jonathan about growing up, his close relationship with his stepdad, Steve, and his love for Sister Act 2. All right, BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Hey, it's Guy Raz here from How I Built This on NPR. And on our latest episode, we tell the story of how Andy Puttycomb and Rich Pearson turned Andy's experience as a Buddhist monk into a guided meditation app. It's called Headspace, and it's now used by millions of people around the world. New episodes come out every Monday. Listen and subscribe right now. You describe in this book a wonderful, lovely, hilarious, engaged, active young boy. Describe for folks that haven't read about you yet, young JVN, because he was something to behold. He seemed like a just delight. Um, well, I was a, a lot of fun. Um, you know, I still, I still am. Yes. Um, I was basically just like a geode obsessed, stamp collecting, rock collecting, like lover of figure skating, obsessed with gymnastics. Kind of exactly how I am now, but yeah, like young. And I had like really cute, like really wide spaced teeth. And <laughs> I had not found my patience and resolve to like have long hair yet. And also like my mom was forcing me to get haircuts every four weeks at Master Cuts, <laughs> which was like a, tr- you know, oh, yeah, let's be true. honest, a travesty in and of itself. <laughs> um, I, I think my life, when I think about it, has mm. been full of extremes. Mm. I think as dark as the dark times were has been as light as the light have been. Mm. It's like equal and opposite reaction yeah. style or something. So, yeah, I did have a lot of fun. And my mom is like... We had a lot of fun. Your mom so seems it, so cool. Yeah, my mom is like, she is a... Like a ride-or-die you know, mom. She is a ride-or-die mom. She's ass deep in cats in my apartment <laughs> in New York as we speak. Um, yeah, she has been raising, like, my poor, like, one-year-old kitten, Liza Mionelli, who survived um, Pan Luke, which is, like, this kitten virus that oh, kills, no. like, 80 to 90% of kittens that get it. It's kind of like parvo for puppies. Oh, no. And the kittens that survive it will oftentimes get, like, really horrific stomach issues because oh, of, like, all the antibiotics and all yeah. the medicine that they have to take to, like, treat it. So I was, like, literally... Well, first it was, like, kitten diarrhea leakage. And I was like, what is this? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. That progressed to me waking up, like, to this cat having full... Oh, no. Like diarrhea BMs, like on my comforter, on my chest, on my pillows, on no, like like in the middle of the night, like two in the morning, just waking up to a sick earthen kitten. Poor baby. It was like so expensive to keep her in New York City. So then I called the vet in Kansas City, and I was like, Oh my god, will you help me? Like I can't lose another kitten right now. Your mom stepped in. No, I took her to the vet. Like back in Kansas City, I had to like fly her to Kansas City. Oh my god. Covered in diarrhea. Get her to the. <laughs> you the had vet this in diarrhea City. cat on the plane. She yes, she oh. was in Kansas City from December to April with oh, the wow. vet. We mm-hmm. finally got her diet like stabilized, figured it out. This IBS like case was horrific, but now she's got thick, solid, okay. great poop, and she's <laughs> ready to go. Now my mom flew her wow. to New York City this past Friday, and she's reunited oh. with Harry, Larry, the weatherman, and <laughs> Matilda and Genevieve, who. With my Charlotte Webb rule, which is, like, if I have a cat pass away, I get two new cats so as to not, like, fall into, like, a horrific losing your cat depression. Yeah. And then, like, Bug the Second had, like, a horrific – I had, like, a cat tragedy this 
this summer while I was filming Queer Eye and um so then I like very like you know height of extremes like went straight to the pound and like adopted two kittens that like same day like while hyperventilating like crying holding kittens and oh like my, my assistant was like telling the lady at like the animal shelter that like I am not as crazy as I look and um, <laughs> um and yeah so now I have four cats and my mom is uh, totally like introducing Liza to the other three this weekend in New York oh, City. Oh my goodness. And now I have four cats and I just really need all these cats to like hold it together. Yeah, because you have a busy life. Shout out to your mom. She just steps in and gets it done. Thank God. For, thank you, mom, if you're listening to this RN. Yes. I want to go back to you as a kid. Yes, please. It's obvious from the start that you love your mother and she means so much to you and she will would do the world for you and she has. But I loved the way that the relationship between you and your stepdad unfolded. Um, you began when he entered the picture being very skeptical of him. And he ends up being this wonderful man who was totally accepting of the JVN who is who is gay and who expresses himself differently and who wants to be a male cheerleader. Like he's never making you not feel like you are part of the family and you draw really close to him in a way that surprised me after how he was introduced. Um, What can you say about Steve for us, for folks that haven't read the book yet? I think he is probably one of the most important and um, formative people of my life. Mm. When someone, like, takes you on as their own when you're not, you know, biologically their own, Mm. I think is really special like Steve never had to do Steve didn't have to raise me like he wanted to Mm. um yeah I I just I don't even know who I would be if not for my relationship with him yeah because he really kind of showed me the ability of people to heal Mm. and that your past doesn't have to be your future Mm. and so yeah he was just such an incredible teacher yeah were you were you surprised by how kind he was to you when he entered the picture. You know, you are... No! Yeah, well, because I think for me, like, (laughs) when I was a kid, you know, figuring out how to be gay, your default assumption would be that any new male figure that entered your life would be either inherently skeptical of you or dismissive of you because of how you expressed yourself. No, no. Mm. That was not my experience with okay. Steve. Or like I was like I was like, you should be wooing me over. I'm your biggest <laughs> obstacle to the <laughs> okay. I didn't know that that's what it was back then, but I was like, I saw Parent Trap. I saw It Takes Two. Those were very popular at the time. And I was like, no, Meredith. So no, I didn't I felt like no. I was like, you better be nice to me. And to be clear, Steve was very much a father figure, like prior to them getting married. I mean, mm. I felt like he owed me something and he made it very clear that he did not. And that he was, you know, like I had an expectation of how that relationship was going to yes. be. And he was like, son. <laughs> and that's exactly how he would have said it. Like, son, like that is not what we're going to do here. Yeah. It would have been, you know, very similar to those words. What you write in the book, the two of y'all, when you were a kid, he'd be driving you around somewhere, going somewhere. And y'all would, y'all would sing together, like belt songs in the car. What songs would y'all belt? Well, Steve was really into Les Mis. He was also into Miss Saigon. Okay. Um, also, Sister Act 2. Yes. I think we both blew out several capillaries in our eyes trying to sing His Eyes on the Sparrow, oh honey. Oh, my God. <laughs> joyful, Joyful was very big for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sister Act 2 was really 
a big deal. It's still a big deal. Yeah. If you want to really be somebody, is. if you want to go Sister, somewhere. Sister, can we spice this up a little bit? <laughs> yes. Sure, if you think you can. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. If you want a piece. Yes, yeah, so good. Yeah, so, so, good. Good. so good. It's so a good, gift so that never stops giving. That's such a classic. Yes. Yes. So you talk a lot in the book about how from an early age you start taking part in some not-so-good behaviors to cope with some of the trauma that you experience at a young age. And one of the first things that you do to start acting out, you write, is that you you, you discover binging and purging when you're like, was it six or a bit older? And you learned this like from a Lifetime movie? Talk about that. I did. Yeah, I mean, I think I was maybe... I think it was like, I mean, it was, I think it was like a little bit after six. I okay. It was, like, it was like a little later, but, but yeah, I did. I learned to kind of self-soothe with food. Mm. Uh, but I also, you know, was very aware of my body from a really young age and feeling like, you know, I wasn't shaped like other little boys. Mm. I was kind of more round and, you know, soft and mm. definitely was never taught to see that as like a positive or something that was like beneficial. Mm. And so I think that it, um, you know, having food give me like a consistent feeling to look to was something that that I did definitely develop early. Yeah. And I mean, like, that is, it's a lifelong struggle. Like, if you're addicted to alcohol or cigarettes or some kind of drug, you can quit those things and have a full life or build towards a full life without them. But if you have certain types of food addiction or disordered eating, you have to get over that thing and still always have food present in your life. That's got to be hard. Well, I mean, I think I struggle with, like, binge eating now still. Mm. I mean, I don't struggle with um, if my body wouldn't betray me so badly for it and if it, like, didn't eat holes in your esophagus and, like, Mm. make your breath crazy and, like, burst Mm. the capillaries in my nose and my face and, like, make me, like, totally, like... Like, if you could binge and purge and get, like, super cute and fit, (laughs) like, I would do that. But you can't. You can't. So I feel like Jonathan, I'm still kind yeah. of in the throes of like, like I still, I mean, I still work on like body image. I mean, I, I feel like I look gorge and I actually yeah. feel really good about my body, but like I definitely struggle with like eating and like not self-soothing with food, especially like this weekend, honey, like the Emmys are like stressing me out so bad. I was like, give me a pizza and like 18,000 <laughs> chicken fingers with honey and ketchup and like like some cinnamon sugar pop tarts like I actually didn't eat any cinnamon sugar pop tarts but they do always sound good they do I'm a strawberry pop tart guy myself oh really but they're all good back to the Emmys you did look great on the red carpet this past weekend thank you I, I had so dress. much fun with that little look it was quite nice it was quite nice thank you yeah um so you deal with the trauma through disordered eating, but the older you get, there are other behaviors that you are using to kind of work through this. Um, I'm talking specifically about sexual habits and drug use. And one, I appreciate your candor in all of that because you shared stuff you didn't have to share, but you shared stuff that a lot of people are probably dealing with. Um when did you feel like you were ready to write those things down? Because, I mean, this is serious drug use, serious, you know, sexual habits that weren't productive for you. It was heavy. When did you know that you could say that and share it? Well, having Queer Eye become a success in it, giving me the platform that it's given me. Yeah. The desire for me to want to share about my experiences in those realms um, became stronger over time. 
there's so many young people that are struggling with what I struggled with. Mm. And, you know, my way is like not the way or like, a or, you know, or the most gorgeous way. And it definitely has had its like down points. But I think that the point of what the book is back to that elevator pitch is that like, no matter how far off course you have gotten and no matter how, you know, up you feel, mm. there is a way to get to a life that is fulfilling and sustainable and that you feel good about and that in a world where you can love and forgive yourself for everything that has happened for you to get to that particular darkness in your life. And the other thing is, is that like that experience like is not a light bulb. And I think that so many mm. times when we are in a up situation, we're looking for that one definitive yep. moment where like you turn a corner and like, yep. oh my God, it's not bad anymore. And in my <clears throat> experience, it has never been that. It has always been three steps forward, two steps yeah. back, three steps. And it's so it's more of like that harm reduction model, which I also talk about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Even I like in the darkest of my dark times, like I, I definitely didn't, see this particular path presenting itself when I did like and I I say this in the book like I just wanted to like be self-sufficient and never yeah. have to borrow money from my parents yeah because god my parents are about borrowing money but they were helpful I will say when I was yeah reading... but yeah but you know what I gave them a nice <laughs> polish on that shit I did I was Ultimately, a good son yes, yes, yeah I was a good yes. good person good child and and but there were some yeah. moments where I was like mama swooped in and, and, and helped she did she helped I wouldn't be here without her for that you know but she also didn't let me forget it okay and she's sitting here with my cats she you know so yeah. we love we love we love so much <laughs> I love it yeah Okay, one more break. I am talking with Queer Eye's Jonathan Van Ness. In a minute, he and I will talk about when things really shifted for him in his life when he was diagnosed with HIV. Plus, how Queer Eye changed his life. Be right back. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. An incident in Nashville that shocked the Latino community. A computer designed to control the entire Chilean economy. A Martian invasion in Ecuador. Radio Ambulante is back with a brand new season. NPR's Spanish-language podcast will take you around Latin America to show you the fascinating, strange, and compelling stories of the region. Subscribe and listen every Tuesday. And talking specifically about the part of the book where you're expressing how these dueling problems of drugs and sex compulsion lead you to a dark place. What was the darkest moment there and then? There were a few that I read in the book, but like, when was a moment where you're like, these drugs are ruining me, this sex and the way I treat sex is ruining me? Was there like a dark moment where you said, okay, we have to begin to dig ourselves out of this hole? Well, I think like collapsing on my face in the middle of highlights and getting diagnosed with HIV the next day was a pretty like clearer... Yeah. Yeah. Indicator. Set up that scene for folks that haven't read it yet. Yeah. Well, so my stepdad, um, you know, after, I mean, it's a, it's a long book. It's a long story. And I feel like it doesn't really do it justice to sensationalize I don't want to give a short shrift it, at all, for sure. Yeah. So it's like I, in my early 20s, I developed a sexual compulsivity that I think was pretty directly linked to the abuse and, and secrecy around my abuse. Um you know, developed in, in, in kind of coming into like a very high stress job uh, and being very young. And that was kind of where the pressure showed itself. Mm. And in that time, you know, meth is a very common and not very much talked about drug that is, you know, both abused in homosexual circles, but also heterosexual circles. Yeah. And it is a very like pervasive, wide ranging problem that yeah. you know ruins people's lives all the time in really high numbers that we just don't really talk about yeah. um, as much 
I don't even want to say like an exact number because I can't think of it, but I definitely was not someone who was like, you know, doing meth on like a daily basis. I was someone who would have, you know, weeks of time of not doing it. And then I would do it for like two days and then have more weeks and then not. So it's not all people that are abusing meth look like people that are on the billboards that you think about that would be doing meth and in gay sex culture. There is definitely a huge meth epidemic. That's a really big problem. I, was introduced to meth, like, not from me finding it, but from, like, going home with someone who was Mm -hmm. doing it and not really putting, you know, two and two together. And I think that's another, like, insidious piece of it is, like, you can... I definitely never saw myself as someone who would, like, ever do meth. Um, Really, I think it's, like, don't ever do it. Don't ever try (laughs) it. If you go home with someone who has it, like, put your shoes on and get out of there like there's it's really not that chic to try it yeah like if you really want to see like the ugliest parts of your soul try meth and if you're thinking to yourself like duh of course it's like but you know you never know what you're going to do like when you watch your dad die in your living room or when you have survived all i mean people do things when they've been through things that you might just you just don't know Mm. that that you would ever do that and when you know watching my stepdad lose his battle to cancer and you know dying in our living room in hospice care like at 25 years old like that me right on up and it took me of course it did and it took me a long time to and also at that same time which we also haven't talked about you know as I was realizing that I had this issue of sexual compulsivity and I was you know dealing with like incapacitating flashbacks of my sexual abuse Mm in and around like work and you know these current sexual acting out behaviors that were going on back at the time like I was like oh god like this is really not normal like what what is this like what is happening to me and the therapist that I had at the time we did kind of go to that anti uh antidepressant route mm. and I thought at the time being like, you know, 24 years old, 23 years old, like, oh if I take these like I'll just stop wanting to hurt myself. Mm. And when I realized that being on antidepressants like didn't cure my self-destructive behavior yeah my gut reaction was like well i'm just not going to take these anymore Uh, and so then i kind of just stopped taking them and that was really that sort of when it got really dark yeah Mm. so then all of these things are happening you end up not knowing you have hiv you're doing hair one day at the salon you pass out when you wake up what is the first thing you think Oh, my God, her highlights. (laughs) And then I was like, where am I? Like, I was like, who are these people and where am I? Wow. And, but then I was like, but girl, you've done really, like, high-risk things before and, like, kind of, you know, didn't, you know, you didn't get it. So maybe, like, maybe this is just, like, really uh, the flu and you just need to go to bed. And so I was, I had my, I was hoping. But then. But then. You know, I really appreciated once you shared that and news of your diagnosis, you took several pages to let people know the ins and outs of HIV and what it means to be on medication and what it means to be undetectable and what it means to be on PrEP. Because a lot of folks still don't know. Like, they don't know. It's a really alarming amount of ignorance around um, living with HIV. Yeah. Like, just a few months ago, uh, a really close family friend asked me if I could, if she could contract HIV from sharing a joint with me. Oh, my God. I've known this person my entire life. I'm so and sorry. And with a completely straight face. Ugh. Like, like literally asking the question. How do you react in those moments? That was not my best reaction that particular <laughs> moment. Um, I, I really took that moment to lean into that particular person's really problematic 
political affiliations and and really went uh, the f- off. Okay. But, you know, other times I've had more grace. But yeah, it's hard. It's really, it's like when George H.W. Bush died, that was hard. Like seeing really? people, yes, like seeing people champion leaders that had a first front row seat to one of the biggest losses of American life in this country's history. The AIDS crisis. The inaction of the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, I think, is part of why I was even able to be exposed to HIV. Mm. If they had gotten on top of this Mm. in the 80s and 90s, we could have stopped. With what we know now about the spread of HIV, we could have had these treatments so much sooner had the American government not been an immovable block. Mm. To research and to be clear, that is what happened. And, and then also, we see right now this really best of times, worst of times when it comes to treating and preventing HIV. There are some people that live in certain parts of the country where you can get the drugs you need and the care you need pretty easily and or cheaply. And there are other parts of the country, like the American South, where if you're a gay man, particularly a gay man of color, your likelihood of just getting the virus is so, so high because of a lot of factors. Stigma around you, lack of access to the health care yes. you need. It's really a crazy time just talking about even just AIDS like, writ large because it's, so, yes. dis- it's, so, it's yes. so disparate. Yes. I mean, even the even the year that I – or the four months that I spent in Atlanta shooting Queer Eye, I went to a walk-in when I was there mm. because I felt like I was having symptoms of something and I could not – even talk to the person that took me in. They had no ability to speak to LGBTQ. um, Yes. Like not male on male anal sex, not male on male oral sex. And all of these things have to be able to be spoken about. Like you have to be able to look at your medical provider and say like, I participate in this, that, whatever, and not be seen as you should not be shamed for your sexuality, for your gender, for how you present in your gender, for how you who you choose to engage in sex with. You have to be able to be honest with your medical care providers. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk. I'm realizing now our time's almost up, but we haven't talked yet about Queer Eye. Let's talk about Queer Eye. Let's talk about Queer Eye. Um, one, you say this in the book, like you and everyone else was surprised by how big it's been. But like, really, how surprised are you by how much everyone Loves this show. I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> but being in this NPR studio, yeah, I'm going to like try not to have a um, nervous breakdown saying it. Uh. I came here to do an interview here for Gay of Thrones. Like, this is the first place I ever came to do a radio interview. Really? NPR West in, in LA? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and... Yeah. Um, it's okay. I know, I know. I don't... I recognize myself Yeah. now, but, like, my life is crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have turned down opportunities this week to be able to be in, like, a stable and self-care place to be able to, like, you know, to do these interviews and to talk about this book. Yeah. You know... Everything that I talk about in the book is like, I went through all of that. And so for someone that's went through all of that, to balance like this much scrutiny and pressure now, like, you know, fundamentally, like not that much time later. Yeah. And it's been years, but it's like, you know, I'm still someone who has survived this trauma and I'm still someone who, you know, has endured these things, but come out the other the other side stronger. But like... I can't believe that I'm on NPR, like, talking about these, like, things to you right now. And, I like, I lived in, like, a one-bedroom apartment that, like, I couldn't afford, like, yeah. a block away from this place. 
And I am happy, and I could have never have seen, like, how much success the queer I would have. Mm. You know, I believe in myself, and I believe in the book, and I believe in, you know, everything that Queer Eye has done. But, like, I'm super uncomfortable, and I am... You know, and I'm scared. So it's like, I am really grateful for the success. And I I hope that um, I don't have any nervous breakdowns on this no, book tour. you are. <laughs> you're just, I mean, like, every moment in which you expose more of yourself and share more of your story in the public eye, it just helps people know that they aren't alone in their struggles. So you know this already, but so many people just appreciate you being unafraid to be the complete you in the public eye. I appreciate it. Well, I think that's the great lie, right? It's like, who said I'm not afraid? Yeah. Like, yeah. I am afraid. Yeah. Like, every time I leave my house in my normal clothes, I'm, like, afraid. Like, I have to, like, look behind me, make sure there's, like, no one that's going to, like, scream faggot or, like, uh. you know, try to f- do something to me. Like, people that don't present is yeah. cisgender people. Like, it's more of, like, being brave enough to, like, say that you're afraid. And I might look confident. I do not always feel confident, but I never said that I always felt confident. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's what makes you confident. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to ask one question about the show. Um, sure. I've watched all of them. I interviewed Karamo a few months ago. All y'all are just such fun interviews and delightful human beings. Um, but I notice on the show, y'all don't really go too far into politics. And the Fab Five helps people on the right and the left. The motto for the show, or at least one of the mottos, has been turning red states pink one makeover at a time. But in that vein, some of your episodes have gotten flack for maybe being too nice to some people who actually might hold anti-LGBT or racist views. You've heard this critique before, but like, what do you say when critics knock the Fab Five for that? Well, I would say that for me, I can only speak for myself yeah. because like, I don't cast the show. None of us cast yeah. the show. Yeah. Um, and I know that we've all have had our own feelings of resistance around working with some of the people who have been cast on the show for, you know, to be heroes. Yeah. So, but, you know, all of that has been on camera and you've seen what those resistances and what those issues were. Um, I have had to hold space and be in the same room with people that were, you know, and are yeah. fully Trump supportive, do not understand the concept of white privilege. I don't think that they would define themselves as racist, but I think that they have a complicated relationship with white privilege and a complicated relationship with taking ownership of what white privilege has done in this country and the mm-hmm. history of the fact that, like, this country's financial system and the wealth that this country was built on was, like, built on the the physical labor of, like, slavery. Yeah. And without yeah. slavery, like... Yeah. America as we know it, like, wouldn't look how it does. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue. Yes. So on the other side of things. Yes. I am able to put myself into this, like, you know, disassociative state where I can, like, choose not to look at people's political affiliations, just focus on their fugly haircut or their <laughs> problematic skin or whatever, because I know about hair and skin. And I can try to connect and help because that's what my job is there for. Yeah. On that show to do that. Yeah. Um, and through approaching those people with some amount of compassion and love and curiosity, there is a potential that their views could shift. Mm. So I do think that there's something to be said for approaching people with some sort of like compassion and curiosity. Yeah. But I, I guess what I would say to those critics is is that like I understand mm. because 
that family friend that said that thing to me about the joint, it is hard for me that that is a family friend. It is mm. hard for me that my family wants to associate with that family. It is hard for me that I have to share space with that person and that I am encouraged to be around with someone who fundamentally cannot understand my plight and my experience in the world because of the ignorance that was in their question. Mm. But I do think that ignorance is really pervasive, yes, but I have never met anyone who changed an ignorant person's heart and mind with venom. There you go. That's it. A question uh, I thought long and hard about as I was finishing your book yesterday. Um, I wondered and wondered and wondered what Steve would make of you now, your stepdad uh, who passed away and who was always so in your corner. If you could talk to him today and he could talk to you today, what do you think would be the first thing y'all would say to each other? That was a really rude question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I would just say how much I miss him. What would he say? Well, if he was immediately downloaded on the events of the last six years, he probably would say something like, like, that's bad to the bone was his very favorite phraseology because he, (laughs) um, you know, was just really peaking in the 90s. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I think he would I think he would be really blown away, though. I think he'd be very proud. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd be really proud. He should be. He should be Thank very you. proud of you. I, uh, Jonathan, I'm so grateful for you and the light that you shine into the world. And I'm grateful for your candor and honesty. And I really do feel like I've just had a wonderful therapy session right now. You have brightened my day more than you know. Oh, my God. Thank you. Um, that lets me know that you should probably make an appointment with your real therapist, well, like stat. So <laughs> We're um, overdue for a visit. I've been traveling for the last two weeks, and I'm like, if I don't see this man soon, it's going to be some Get problems. on some self-care, queen. <laughs> yes. If I'm sounding like therapy to you, that means you need to see your therapist. <laughs> it's been two weeks. So, I, yeah, he is he is due for me in that chair very soon. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Thank really you, Jonathan. Thanks again to Queer Eyes' Jonathan Van Ness for talking with me. Jonathan, let's uh, sing movie soundtracks together again sometime soon. You can get his book right now. It's called Over the Top, A Raw Journey to Self-Love. It's out today. Okay, if you love this chat and want to hear more from another Queer Eye cast member, catch my live conversation with Jonathan's co-star, Karamo Brown. That is further down in our podcast feed for It's Been a Minute. All right, that's a wrap. We are back in your feeds Friday. Till then, thank you for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.